Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. On the morning of September 8, 1967, Colorado rancher Harry King noticed that one of their three horses had failed to show up for their morning grain and water. He walked out of the ranch house where he worked as ranch boss and lived with his mother 85-year-old Agnes King to tend to the two horses, hoping he would see the third horse, Lady, out in the meadow. But she hadn't appeared. It was a blustery day in the Alpine Valley in south-central Colorado, and it matched Harry's mood as he worked around the ranch, watching for Lady, but seeing no sign of her. He was getting a strange feeling that something was wrong. Maybe it was his mother's story the day before when she told him she had seen a low-flying silvery object pass over the meadow that morning. But when he asked her for details, she told him she couldn't see it that clearly. She was a tough old ranch lady, and together the family, including his brother Ben and sister Nellie, had seen everything from frozen cattle to brush fires to mountain lions, so there wasn't much left that could bother them. It was a hard life, dominated by ranch work from can see to can't see. If she said she saw a low-flying object, she had seen something, and it was no bird. It was an object. And today, he had a missing horse. Early the next morning, September 9th, he mounted up and set out to look for Lady. About a quarter mile north of the ranch house, he spotted something lying in the meadow and he turned his horse toward it. As he spotted it, the hair rose on the back of his neck. His horse shied, so he dismounted and approached it on foot. It was Lady. Her corpse was missing all the tissue and hair from her shoulders to the tip of her nose. The exposed bones glistening a bleached white as if they'd been lying exposed in the desert sun for years. The flesh, tendons, muscles, meat, and hide were entirely missing from Lady's nose to a circular cut just above the horse's shoulders. It was a surgical incision-style cut that left no jagged edges. Lady was lying on her left side facing east in a damp meadow located about one quarter mile west of Route 150, a two-lane, heavily traveled dirt road that traveled north another six miles to the Great Sand Dunes National Monument. Harry looked closely for sign of tracks, seeing no human or animal tracks around the carcass. There were no bird droppings, and there had been no vultures present when he arrived. 
Normally, a freshly dead animal, with all this exposed raw meat, would have attracted coyotes and vultures at the minimum. It had rained in the days previous, leaving the ground there soft and muddy. But there was no sign of interaction with the horse, and no sign of struggle. It was as if she'd been dropped from the sky. Harry noticed a strange scent in the air that he later described as a medicinal smell, like you would smell in a hospital. But the most startling feature of the corpse was the lack of blood. There was no pool of blood where the hide and flesh had been cut away. Nothing. Trying to choke down a rising fear, Harry slowly walked to his horse and circled the immediate area, looking for tracks. He found tracks of all three horses out in the meadow and saw where they had broken into a run, where at one point, Lady had veered off from the other two, which were headed for the ranch house. It looked as if she had been cut off from the others. Her tracks still showing at a full gallop, but in a tighter and tighter circle, suddenly disappeared at a point about a hundred yards from where Lady's body was now lying. Disappeared, meaning the tracks ended while she was in full gallop. His mind racing with impossibilities, Harry headed back to the ranch house to alert his mother and call his brother and sister. His sister Nellie lived in a cabin on another section of the ranch with her husband Burl Lewis. Days later, Harry King, his sister Nellie, Burl, and friends, after a series of discussions that tried to make sense out of what had happened, decided to investigate. Nellie had contacted the county sheriff, Ben Phillips, who declared that Lady had been killed by lightning. There was no reason he needed to come out and look. Lightning strikes were common, and cattle and horses were a common target. The group found what appeared to be four burned areas in the ground at 4, 9, 13, and 21 feet away from the site of the carcass. The burn marks were shaped like an upside-down question mark. More burn marks were found in the opposite direction, 45 feet or so from the site of the carcass. Five 18-inch wide by 8-inch deep indentations were found near a flattened chico bush not far from the body. Maybe as if the horse had been dropped feet first and then fell over sideways. When Nellie touched her dead horse's mane, her hands soon began to feel like they were burning. Her boots had also tested radioactive after she had walked through several burns that had surrounded the scene where Lady's hoofprints had stopped. The fact that her hands had experienced a burning sensation had brought the attention of the United States Forest Service, who sent an agent with a Geiger counter to survey the scene. He discovered a pulse of unusually high radioactivity for two city blocks surrounding Lady's body, where people were now quickly beginning to believe that a craft of some type had landed. Nellie was convinced, based on the fact that she had heard reports during the last two weeks of strange flying objects, that Lady's death was caused by something not of this earth. When the reporters came, they quoted her as saying her saddle horse had been killed by flying saucers. You can only imagine what direction the story went in from that point. Keep in mind from the start of this story, that to this date, Nellie's never been proven wrong.
The unexplainable death of Lady in Alamosa, Colorado, was soon picked up by the press, who got the name wrong, changed Lady to Snippy, and copied the Snippy report worldwide without fact-checking the initial report. Like Mark Twain once said, a lie will travel halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. But the news articles did include the fact that strange lights had been seen in the weeks prior to Lady's death, and that the circumstances of her strange mutilation were definitely unusual. High levels of radiation had also been found near Lady's body. Lady had been cut open by something with laser sharpness, and everything from the hide to the outer and inner flesh, blood, tissue, tendons, everything had been removed as if sucked away by an extremely powerful vacuum, leaving just bleach white bone from the nose back to the shoulder. The eyeballs were gone, the tongue had been cut out, the esophagus removed, and the windpipe gone. All the hair, even the hair of the mane and the hide on the neck, gone, and that cut completely around the neck was smooth, laser sharp. The smell that emanated from the corpse wasn't exactly dead animal smell. Nellie had described it as a smell like embalming fluid. Her husband Burl said it smelled more like medicine. In an article written by Christopher O'Brien, who has authored three books about the happenings in the San Luis Valley of Colorado, O'Brien looks back 50 years to the seminal event that marked the first of what has been by today over 10,000 similar animal mutilations and become one of the greatest unsolved mysteries on the planet and a prime topic in the halls of alien studies. In an interview years later with Burl Lewis, O'Brien asked Lewis this question. I heard that Harry found a bull and a calf he owned blinded right around the time of Lady's death. Lewis answered, yes, the bull was blind, and it had happened about a month before Lady's death. No reason known, it had just lost its sight. The calf that had always accompanied the bull had suffered something very strange. Lewis described it in this way. His head looked like a basketball. His nose came off the end of the basketball, if you can imagine what that looked like. His hooves were about that long, Lewis explained, using his hands to show a distance of about 12 inches wide. And they looked like sled runners, he said. He had an awful time walking. His ears looked like they'd been frosted off, and his body didn't look like it developed like it should have. We never tied these two into anything else. O'Brien asked the obligatory question. Was it born that way? Well, not really. I don't think so. Nobody ever said anything about it. O'Brien asked him why his wife Nellie had told reporters that she was convinced that flying saucers had killed her horse. I don't think she was convinced it was UFOs or anything like that, but she knew it was something still unexplained that killed her horse. It wasn't anything natural. Couldn't be natural. A cursory look at reported UFO phenomenon in Colorado and the surrounding region in the fall of 1967 shows a slew of reports. In the weeks preceding and following the incident, two high-flying disc-shaped objects had been spotted over Houston, Texas, headed in a direction toward southwest Colorado. A number of sightings were witnessed at the Great Sand Dunes National Monument, 
previously mentioned as being within a few miles of the King Ranch. These sightings had stretched back to December of the previous year. The week previous, scientists at the National Atmospheric Research Center in Palestine, Texas, described seeing a crescent-shaped object in the sky, glowing brightly. Other reported sightings of similar glowing crescent-shaped objects had been reported that summer and fall. So something was going on in the skies over southern Colorado and surrounding areas. The San Luis Valley of Colorado, particularly the area surrounding the Great Sand Dunes National Park, is no stranger to stories of strange goings-ons. Stories from the Indian tribes that inhabited the area tell of underground caverns. Stories of caverns and tunnels that sheltered ant people who operated flying seed pods that ferried people off toward the stars. Kincaid's Caverns in Arizona's Grand Canyon, a story that we'll be doing soon, is just another example of the legend surrounding alien life in the American Southwest. Cattle mutilation, also known as bovine excision, and also called unexplained livestock death, is defined as the killing and mutilation of cattle under unusual, usually bloodless, and anomalous circumstances. On a worldwide scale, sheep, horses, goats, pigs, rabbits, cats, dogs, buffalo, deer, and elk have been reported mutilated with similar bloodless excisions, often an ear, eyeball, jaw, flesh, tongue, lymph nodes, genitals, and rectum are removed. Since the first reports of animal mutilations, various explanations have been offered ranging from natural decomposition and normal predation to cults and secretive governmental and military agencies to a range of speculations including cryptid predators like the chupacabra and extraterrestrials. Mutilations have been the subject of three independent federal investigations in the United States, two exhaustive FBI investigations, and one ATF investigation. In history, the earliest known documented outbreak of unexplained livestock deaths occurred in early 1606, around the city of London and some of the shires adjoining. Whole slaughters of sheep have been made, in some places to number 100, in others less, where nothing is taken from the sheep but their tallow and some inward parts, the whole carcasses, and fleece remaining still behind. The outbreak was noted in the official records of the court of James I of England. Charles Fort collected many accounts of cattle mutilations that occurred in England in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. John Keel mentioned investigating animal mutilation cases in 1966 while with Ivan T. Sanderson that were being reported in the upper Ohio River Valley around Gallipolis, Ohio. The phenomenon remained largely unknown outside cattle raising communities until 1967 when the Pueblo chieftain in Pueblo, Colorado published our leading story about Lady near Alamosa. The story was republished by the wider press and distributed nationwide and beyond. This case was the first to feature speculation that extraterrestrial beings and unidentified flying objects were associated with mutilations, and that's what makes it memorable. After Lady's death, the number of cattle mutilations soared, along with UFO sightings many centered roughly along the 37 north parallel, the latitudinal line you can easily draw along the southern ridge of Colorado, 
New Mexico, Utah, and Arizona, a fact recently brought to light in the 37th Parallel, The Secret Truth Behind America's UFO Highway by Atria Books, which is a very insightful new read from best-selling author Ben Mesrick, a book inspired by and contributed to by one-time sheriff's deputy and microchip engineer Chuck Zukowski, who handed in his badge after being sent to discover the cause of cattle mutilations in his district, and his going public about not being satisfied with the answers the county wanted to provide to the public. Chuck has devoted most of the last 28 years to studying cattle mutilations and other unanswered phenomena in the Southwest, and he has developed a very informative website at ufonut.com, as well as a very strong reputation of being the first person most ranchers now call when livestock mutilations occur. He is considered an expert at ufology, knows Roswell and Area 51, which we'll talk about much more deeply in an upcoming episode titled Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the story that inspired Spielberg's movie. As just mentioned, Zukowski originated the 37th Parallel Theory, which is gaining a lot of traction in the field of paranormal research. More on him coming soon in this story. By 1975, the mutilations were happening at a rate averaging one per night in a huge area stretching through the mid and southwest and prompting a request for an investigation from Democratic Senator Floyd K. Haskell, who contacted the FBI asking for help in that year due to public concern regarding the issue. He claimed there had been 130 mutilations in Colorado alone, and further reports across nine states indicated many more. A 1979 FBI report indicated that, according to investigations by the New Mexico State Police, there had been an estimated 8,000 mutilations in Colorado, causing approximately $1 million in damage. With regard to the federal reports, I'm going to cut right to it and let you know that all the tax-paid federal investigations turned up was the conclusion that predators were the ones most likely responsible for all the cattle mutilations, except in cases where that didn't apply. The real answers were going to have to be provided by local law enforcement and independent players, and the research provided by men like Gabe Valdez and Chuck Zukowski and organizations like Bigelow Aerospace are going to play major parts in the story that's unfolding here. Who or what is committing the cattle mutilations is another mystery with people lining up on both sides. Federal agents and experts, combined with skeptics from every corner of the scientific and natural universe, were and are still seeking answers as to what's causing the mutilations, leaving all those pesky true details that can't be explained out of the explanations. They refuse to look into the possibility that there might be an explanation that goes beyond our known human world. Or, in lieu of that, that the mutilations might be taking place as part of a top-secret government operation. And because they don't want to be classified as gullible or less than scientific, they won't look into paranormal or conspiratorial possibilities. That's somebody else's job. And as long as that condition exists, we'll be stuck with top-secret government agencies that do look into it, but won't share what they find. Some major revelations were just made within the past year about at least one of these agencies, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes. 
But first, let's take a few of the explanations for a walk around the pasture, so to speak, before we get to otherworldly explanations. First, blowflies. These pesky scavengers have been blamed for giving the bovine carcasses of animals that just up and died that mutilated look. Especially choosy, they, as well as vultures, only target the eyes and sensitive areas around the animal's anus and lips. If they are indeed responsible, they also bore a centrifugal hole through the anus, removing all the genitalia in the process and suck up four gallons of blood as well. Not to be beaten to a fresh meal, the coyotes arrive, the prairie and desert cleanup crew, eating whatever they can sink their teeth into that tastes good. They are not making a clean, laser-sharp cut through the animal's hide with one sharp, razor-like tooth, then consuming every scrap of flesh and tendon from the animal's nose down to its shoulder, leaving the tasty belly and rib meat behind, and they're not leaving any tracks behind. Come on, guys. Predators? You gotta be kidding. Some ranchers have disputed the more scientifically mainstream natural causes hypotheses on the grounds that the mutilated animals often fall outside of the normal categories of natural deaths by predation or disease. One reason cited is that the animals were healthy and showed no sign of disease prior to death and were large and strong enough not to be a likely target for a predator. In some cases, ranchers have reported that the mutilated cattle were among the healthiest and strongest animals in their herd. Other critics of the accepted position include investigators involved in paranormal and UFO research organizations, such as National Institute for Discovery Scientists, which report the discovery of anomalies in necropsies which, they claim, cannot be explained by natural processes. The first FBI investigation was headed up by Officer Gabe Valdez of Hispaniola, New Mexico, reporting to the FBI office in Albuquerque. His work was eventually declassified and included in a book by his son Greg Valdez titled The Dulce Case. On the matter of whether or not the mutilations were the work of cults or natural predators, Valdez said in one particular 1970s report, both have been ruled out due to expertise and preciseness and the cost involved to conduct such a sophisticated and secretive operation. It should also be noted that during the spring of 1974, when a tremendous amount of cattle were lost due to heavy snowfalls, the carcasses had been eaten by predators. These carcasses did not resemble the carcasses of the mutilated cows. Valdez's investigation narrowed down to these theories which involve covert U.S. government testing involving 1. experimental use of vitamin B12 and 2. the testing of the lymph node systems. During this investigation, an intensive study was made of what needs to be involved in germ warfare testing and the possible correlation of these three factors, germ warfare testing, use of vitamin B12, and the testing of lymph node systems. Remember the report we just read about the blind bull and the deformed calf on the ranch where Lady was killed? Maybe the victims of government experimentation? A further, very strange report can be found in Valdez's files, this time from 1978. Quote, 
This four-year-old cross Hereford and Black Angus native cow was found lying on its left side with the rectum, sex organs, tongue, and ears removed. Pinkish blood was visible, and after two days the blood still had not coagulated. Left front and left rear leg were pulled out of their sockets, apparently from the weight of the cow, which indicates that it was lifted and then dropped back to the ground. The ground around and under the cow was soft and showed indentations where the cow had been dropped 600 yards away from the cow were the four-inch circular indentations similar to the ones found at the Manuel Gomez Ranch on April 24, 1978. This cow had been dead many hours and was too decomposed to extract samples. This is the first in a series of mutilations in which the cow's legs are broken. Previously, the animals had been lifted from the brisket with a strap. These mutilated animals all dehydrate rapidly in one or two days. As the summer of 1978 progressed, so did the number of reports where elevated radiation readings were found, as Valdez noted in his records. Quote, It is believed that this type of radiation is not harmful to humans, although approximately seven people who visited the mutilation site complained of nausea and headaches. However, this writer has had no such symptoms after checking approximately 11 mutilations in the past four months. Identical mutilations have been taking place all over the Southwest. It is strange, he writes, that no eyewitnesses have come forward or that no accidents have occurred. One has to admit that whoever is responsible for the mutilations is very well organized with boundless financing and secrecy. End quote. A lengthy document prepared by Forrest S. Putman, the FBI's special agent in charge at Albuquerque, New Mexico, was soon thereafter sent to the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. It read, quote, Information furnished to this office by Officer Valdez indicates that the animals are being shot with some type of paralyzing drug, and the blood is being drawn from the animal after an injection of an anticoagulant. It appears that in some instances, the cattle's legs have been broken and helicopters without any identifying numbers have reportedly been seen in the vicinity of these mutilations. Officer Valdez theorizes that clamps are being placed on the cow's legs and they are being lifted by helicopter to some remote area where the mutilations are taking place and then the animal is returned to its original pasture. The mutilations primarily consist of removal of the tongue, the lymph gland, lower lip, and the sexual organs of the animal. Much mystery has surrounded these mutilations, but according to witnesses, they give the appearance of being very professionally done with a surgical instrument. And according to Valdez, as the years progress, each surgical procedure appears to be more professional. Officer Valdez has advised that in no instance, to his knowledge, are these carcasses ever attacked by predator or scavenger animals, although there are tracks which would indicate that coyotes have been circling the carcass from a distance. Special Agent Putman then informed the director of the outcome of Valdez's run-ins with officials. He writes, He also advised that he has requested Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory to conduct investigation for him, 
but until just recently has always been advised that the mutilations were done by predatory animals. Officer Valdez stated that just recently he has been told by two assistants at Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory that they were able to determine the type of tranquilizer and blood anticoagulant that have been utilized. End quote. Special Agent Putman then demonstrated to headquarters the astonishing scale of the mutilation puzzle. He writes, Officer Valdez stated that Colorado probably has the most mutilations occurring within their state, and that over the past four years, approximately 330 mutilations have occurred in New Mexico. He stated that of these 330, 15 have occurred on Indian reservations, but he did know that many mutilations on Indian reservations have gone unreported because the Indians, particularly in the Pueblos, are extremely superstitious and will not even allow officers in to investigate in some instances. Officer Valdez stated, since the outset of these mutilations, there have been an estimated 8,000 animals mutilated, which would place the loss at approximately $1 million. End quote. In Valdez's son Greg's book, Dulce Base, The Truth and Evidence from the Case Files of Gabe Valdez by Greg Valdez, by Levi Cash Publishing in 2013, which we highly recommend you read if you're interested in getting to the bottom of this whole story. He describes the call that originally brought Valdez into the investigation of cattle mutilation. It had come from a friend of his named Gomez, who owned a small ranch not far from Albuquerque and Kirkland Air Force Base, and he called Valdez and asked him to come and take a look. It was a mutilation similar to the ones we've described here, and it was to be the first of many on his ranch. As each one occurred, and Valdez was drawn deeper into his investigations, he was getting closer and closer to believing that the mutilations were part of a secret government project, and that the sophisticated equipment and technology being used could only be coming from Kirkland Air Force Base and its secret testing and research facility near the small community of Dulce, New Mexico. Here's a very revealing book review of Gene Valdez's book, Dulce Base. The review reads, Up until 2005, what little I knew about the small community of Dulce, New Mexico, was that there was an allegedly a secret underground base near there, operated by both aliens and certain elements within the U.S. military. Their sinister collaboration involved bizarre experiments involving humans and animals and had a lot to do with reported alien abductions and the cattle mutilation crisis of the 70s and 80s. What their endgame was, was anyone's guess, writes this reviewer. Fortunately, in 2005, it continues, Fortunately, in 2005, fringe culture historian Greg Bishop released his fantastic book, Project Beta, the story of Paul Benowitz, national security, and the creation of a modern UFO myth, a book I reviewed at the time for the Town Talk newspaper in Louisiana. I gave it high praise at the time, writes this reviewer. For me, he writes, Bishop's well-researched book laid to rest the outlandish theories that aliens were tunneling underground under the watchful eye of Uncle Sam, as nefarious deeds were conducted under cover of night and various black-budget projects. No. 
the U.S. Air Force actually drove a man over the edge, Paul Benowitz, because he was investigating the strange goings-ons at Kirkland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, where Benowitz lived, all via disinformation and various psyops in hopes of steering Benowitz down dead-end trails. It's an ugly story of government abuse of a citizen simply seeking the truth. So when I saw Dulce Base, I was curious to learn more about what had been written about the topic, big in UFO circles, in the past decade. I should mention that author Greg Valdez is the son of Gabe Valdez, noted in the title. The elder Valdez was an officer with the New Mexico State Police and stationed in the northern portion of the land of enchantment. He continues, The son is a very level-headed man whose father had passed away, but left behind a treasure trove of documents from his years pursuing cattle mutilation cases and related unexplained phenomena. Officer Valdez, in his time, was a sort of agent Mulder, but with his feet planted firmly on the ground. And his son is also a very practical and pragmatic person who is not interested in conspiracy theories or wild tales of alien invasions. He simply wants to know the truth, just as his father had for many years. That's not to say that people in northern New Mexico and southern Colorado haven't seen strange lights and high weirdness in their neck of the woods for many years now, because they have. But the explanations, by the time you get to the end of Dulce Base, seem to have a more terrestrial explanation. The purpose of this book is not to prove alien existence so that more copies of this book will sell writes Valdez in the prologue. The goal is simply to provide you, the reader, the evidence and truth about what really happened and to document the investigations and evidence that my dad spent years of his life pursuing. And we get that with Dulce Base, which is very refreshing in an age where disinformation pollutes the field of ufology. So it was in June 1976 when Officer Gabe Valdez was initially contacted by a cattle rancher named Manny Gomez, who ranched near Dulce, which abuts the sizable Jicarilla Apache Nation Reservation. Concerned about what he had come across, one of his cows was dead. He told Valdez that the cow was missing its reproductive organs and that he had also found three circular impressions in the dirt that looked like some kind of aircraft had landed close by. When Officer Valdez went to investigate, he found the animal lying on its side and its left ear, tongue, udder, and rectum removed with what appeared to be a sharp, precise instrument. No traces of blood appeared on the cow's skin. And things continued on from there, with more cows mutilated, strange crap darting around the sky over Dulce, and glowing tombstones. And all that here that on one night Valdez and his men and a contingent of U.S. Fish and Wildlife agents, probably led by Valdez's friend Howard Johnson, having been patrolling an area where sounds of aircraft and mysterious lights had been appearing, actually cornered something as it landed on a nearby isolated ridge and got close, but could only see the lights. The craft, to men of both sides, was invisible. Sounds of voices talking in code was coming from the craft. Valdez and the fish and game agents were all in contact, and according to one story, Valdez ordered them to shoot at the craft so they could disable it and catch it. But at that moment, the craft, still only just lights, 
no craft, rose and whisked away, making a low humming sound. It's hard to imagine how many questions might have been answered had they been able to bring it down. Afterwards, at least one of the groups said they'd seen a silhouette of something maybe 100 feet by 100 feet, either box or pyramid shape, they couldn't tell, but only for an instant. Was it a large drone? Were there men inside? What was it doing there? Was this what was responsible for the cattle mutilations? All these questions remain unanswered. But when radar shaft began to be found at the sites of the mutilations, along with ballpoint pens reading U.S. government and the Air Force acting strangely when questioned about aerial activity, is all of this related to keeping stealth aircraft tests quiet? But why is it happening on sovereign land controlled by the Jicarella Apache and not at some government-operated base? But things actually get really interesting in Valdez's book when he gets into the history of peaceful underground nuclear detonations as part of Project Plowshare in the 1960s and 70s. The tests were to see if nuclear explosions could help access natural gas. The tests only contaminated the gas with radiation and didn't work. It was like fracking with a nuke. One of the tests in this area of New Mexico was Project Gas Buggy. The test may have resulted in flaring that released radioactivity into the environment and contaminated animals in the area. The mutilation started just a few years after the last plowshare test was conducted. So is there a connection? Greg Valdez writes of his father's relationship with the aforementioned Paul Benowitz. And there's an interesting chapter on the so-called Redding Ranch, abutting the Mount Archuleta area where a lot of mysterious activity has occurred. The ranch, which has guard towers that the owner, who owned a Texas-based steel pipe company that was a military contractor with work done at the Nevada test site, quote, for construction of underground tunnels during the testing of nuclear bombs in Nevada, end quote. Those towers were said to be used to view wildlife. A likely story. And the connection as a military contractor seems rather coincidental. Plus, the Dulce area is not that far from Sandia Labs, Los Alamos Nuclear Laboratory, Fort Carson, Colorado, and other military installations. Were the military to have a secret off-the-books underground base in the Dulce area, it wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility. But really, Greg Valdez explains rather plainly and to the point that a lot of disinfo has tainted the Dulce story, and this book was put out there to bring things back to earth. I would have to say that Greg Valdez successfully reached his goal in clearing up a lot of misinformation and outright fabrications that have followed the Dulce story for years. And thus ends the rather long and very informative book review. And what about the story of Paul Benowitz? From all we can gather, Paul Benowitz was an electrical engineer who lived near enough to Kirkland Air Force Base to be seen what he deemed to be very unusual lights, especially when filmed in broad daylight at an advanced 1-1000th shutter speed, emanating from Kirkland and the mountains nearby. Lights Benowitz described as a thin green beam of light stretching up into the heavens. At the same time he was looking at lights, he was also picking up coded NSA signals, those being from the National Security Agency, 
and he was seeing and hearing all this at the same time that cattle mutilation reports and UFO sightings were rampant in the area. Being of curious mind, he started looking around, talking to people, and sharing details with people who cared, like Detective Gomez. And when he went to the NSA with what he knew, which turned out to be a big mistake, he was surprised that they gave him a grant to continue his research. So he shared everything he was finding with them, and in turn, they were keeping tabs on him, listing everyone he contacted in any way, in order that they could find out how many people he was bringing into his circle. When he reached a point at which he was getting too close, maybe when he identified that green radiation beam as being named the Starfire Range Project, whose job it was to detect Soviet satellites, or when he identified and somehow got aerial photos of unwinged aircraft at Kirkland, or when he had a witness tell him that genetic experiments were being carried out at an underground lab that extended below the town of Dulce. The NSA had a problem on their hands and ran a very effective disinformation campaign that spread lies about him and his work, making him look like just another tinfoil-wearing common lunatic. At the same time, they started spreading rumors of UFOs in the area, especially UFOs that wanted cattle blood and parts, to detract from the fact that the U.S. government was actually killing those horses and steers and using the blood and parts to perform a host of experiments ranging from biological warfare to genetic mutation, basically one and the same. As to the type of crafts they were using, flying craft that were stealth in nature, those were top-secret government projects that might have come from the scientists of Operation Paperclip, those Germans we had brought back after the fall of Hitler, who had been working on everything from time travel to top-secret weaponry and biological warfare. We mentioned Operation Paperclip and the Nazi Bell in our past episode titled The Kecksburg UFO, which was a fascinating story of a so-called UFO that landed in a small Pennsylvania town not far from the Ohio border and Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, America's home for top-secret research in aircraft propulsion, according to those who are familiar with Wright-Patterson and willing to talk about it. It was actually a UFO prototype crafted by the half of the German scientists that Russia took in the Operation Paperclip deal, being directed remotely back toward Wright-Patterson. It fell a little short, and the feds had to move in quickly to cover it up, telling the people who had witnessed it there was basically nothing to see, just a small meteorite, though hundreds had seen a bell-shaped object flame flowing out from underneath it as it re-entered the atmosphere, being eventually directed toward a landing in the woods, and a lucky few had seen it in the woods before being shoved out by the authorities. Again, to get the whole story, search 1001 Heroes Archives for the Kecksburg UFO, K-E-C-K, S-B-U-R-G. Getting back to the wrap-up of the New Mexico cattle mutilations, the wrap-up by the FBI, after receiving Valdez's report, FBI senior agent Putman additionally advised the director of the FBI that, quote, it is obvious if mutilations are to be solved, there is a need for a coordinated effort so that all material available can be gathered and analyzed and further efforts synchronized. Whether the FBI should assume this role is a matter to be decided. If we are merely to investigate and direct our efforts toward the 15 mutilated cattle on the Indian Reservation, we, I believe, 
will be in the same position as the other law enforcement agencies at this time and would be seeking to achieve an almost impossible task. End quote. Putman went on to describe the theories that had been advanced to try and explain the phenomenon. Quote, we have no theories whatsoever as to why or what is responsible for these cattle mutilations. Officer Gabe Valdez is very adamant in his opinion that these mutilations are the work of the U.S. government and that it is some clandestine operation either by the CIA or the Department of Energy and in all probability is connected with some type of research into biological warfare. His main reason for these beliefs is that he feels that he was given the runaround by Los Alamos Scientific Laboratory, and they are attempting to cover up this situation. There are also theories that these are cults or some type of Indian rituals resulting in these mutilations, and the wildest theory advanced is that the mutilations have some connection with unidentified flying objects. In the closing section of his report, Putman said, If we are to assume an investigative posture into this area, the matter of manpower, of course, becomes a consideration, and I am unable to determine at this time the value of moving forward. In his 1997 article, Dead Cows I've Known, cattle mutilation researcher Charles T. Oliphant speculates cattle mutilation to be the result of covert research into emerging cattle diseases and the possibility they could be transmitted to humans. Oliphant posits the NIH, CDC, or other federally funded bodies may be involved, and they are supported by the U.S. military. Part of his hypothesis is based on allegations that human pharmaceuticals have been found in mutilated cattle, and on the necropsies that show cattle mutilations commonly involve areas of the animal that relate to, quote, input, output, and reproduction, end quote. To support his hypotheses, Oliphant cites the Reston Ebola virus case in which plainclothes military officers traveling in unmarked vehicles entered a research facility in Reston, Virginia to secretly retrieve and destroy animals that were contaminated with a highly infectious disease. And for all of you who think this covert government stuff is pure fiction, let us remind you of the story best known as the Monkey House in Reston, Virginia. It had all the makings of a public health disaster, an outbreak of a wildly deadly virus breaking out near the nation's capital, with dozens of lab monkeys dead, multiple people testing positive, and no precedent in this country at that time on how to contain it. Twenty-five years ago, in an office park near Washington's Dulles Airport, a covert crisis revealed years later by an investigative journalist when dozens of macaca monkeys imported from the Philippines at Hazleton Research's primate quarantine unit at Reston. And it looked to many as if we had a full-blown Ebola or Ebola-like virus on our hands. Scientists at the center, after seeing the monkeys in one room die first, and then others in a totally separate quarantined room die as well, were understandably panicked and knew they had to clean it out without causing a national scare. Back in 1989, they believed that Ebola could be transmitted through the air, and the smell of monkey was everywhere. While the CDC worked to eliminate the infestation, the army, in plain clothes, was called in to deal with the monkeys. Four workers tested positive for the virus, but fortunately, they did not get sick afterwards. 
It did turn out to be Ebola, but a strain, a new strain, that was coined the Reston Ebola virus. The monkeys were pinned to the walls with broom handles while receiving shots, and the rooms with dozens of sick, screaming monkeys and frantic military volunteers shouting their frustration are quiet now and long forgotten. But the fact that it was all kept a secret for years shows the government's ability to keep anything quiet. And if they can keep a suspected deadly virus quiet, they can do the same with cattle mutilations. Additionally, a 2002 NIDS report relates the eyewitness testimony of two Catch County, Utah police officers. The area had seen many unusual cattle deaths, and ranchers had organized armed patrols to surveil the unmarked aircraft, which they claimed were associated with the livestock deaths. The police witnesses claimed to have encountered several men in an unmarked U.S. Army helicopter in 1976 at a small community airport in Cache County. The witnesses asserted that after this heated encounter, cattle mutilations in the region ceased for about five years. Biochemist Colm Kelleher, who has investigated several purported mutilations firsthand, argues that the mutilations are most likely a clandestine U.S. government effort to track the spread of bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or mad cow disease, and related diseases such as scrapie. Theories of government involvement in cattle mutilation have been further fueled by black helicopter sightings near mutilation sites. On April 8, 1979, three police officers in Dulce, New Mexico, reported a mysterious aircraft which resembled a U.S. military helicopter hovering around a site following a wave of mutilation which claimed 16 cows. On July 15, 1974, two unregistered helicopters, a white helicopter and a black twin-engine aircraft, opened fire on Robert Smith Jr. while he was driving his tractor on his farm in Honey Creek, Iowa. This attack followed a rash of mutilations in the area and across the nearby border in Nebraska. The reports of helicopter involvement have been used to explain why some cattle appear to have been dropped from considerable heights. And if you start looking at the research they've been doing at the Skinwalker Ranch at skinwalkerranch.org, they have witnessed hearing a sound very similar to that of helicopters flying overhead. They can hear it coming toward them, along with the chatter of what can only be assumed as being a pilot and co-pilot speaking in an alien language, and then passing beyond them. The sound of the slow wop-wop, along with the pilot's chatter, disappearing. And this happening numerous times in daylight and darkness, yet with the witnesses not seeing a thing, only hearing. That's just one of the very strange occurrences happening at that Utah ranch. Other types of strange craft have been heard, and some seen as well. Where they're coming from and who pilots them, no one knows. This story has led me, at 1001, to all kinds of stories. I found one very interesting report called the Cassiopeia Report, where in 1995, a woman who claimed to be channeling world-famous psychic Edgar Cayce answered the questions, is the U.S. government participating in cattle mutilations with yes to an extent and answered and why 
with, to protect the public from learning the truth about alien beings doing the cattle mutilations. In other words, to throw people off the scent lest they stumble upon the truth, which, as she related under hypnosis, turned out to be certain alien life forms, specifically lizard beings and gray beings, needing blood and organs for their travels while in the third level of existence, a level requiring nourishment. In the fourth level, they need no nourishment, relying upon their soul. Rather than mess with humans, they can get much more nourishment from cattle and horses and not have to put up with the pesky humans fighting back. I don't know if all this leaves your mind spinning with different possibilities, but it sure has that effect on mine. One thought I had, would our government, in an effort to cover up and keep us in the dark, do something so stupid? And remembering how when the huge UFO flew over Phoenix back in the 90s, the local air base sent up a bunch of test balloons with lights dropped by A-10 warthogs so they could tell the public it was test balloons and planes they were seeing, not a UFO bigger than a few football fields. All this despite the fact that thousands of Arizonans saw a huge, slow-flying UFO a few blocks wide and slow and low enough to hit with a BB gun flying over their neighborhoods. This story can be found in our Phoenix UFO episode at 1001 Heroes Podcast. It's a great story and includes an interview with the family, each of them giving their account of what they witnessed as they stood in the driveway wide-eyed and watched an absolutely huge craft slowly rumble over their neighborhood, a craft that came in from a cut in the mountains uh, on its way toward Phoenix, and they were one of the first to witness it. Interesting, very interesting interview. Chuck Zukowski's theory of the 37th parallel being a paranormal highway is now a book, soon to become a movie from New Line Cinema, and it was suggested as being a netherworld highway extending in the U.S. for starters from Southern California eastward to Newport News, Hampton, Virginia. And once you start marking UFO sightings and strange places with strange occurrences, especially out west in depopulated areas, they usually fall fairly close to this line, maybe a few degrees north or south, but the line provides a center path. We can thank the adrenaline-fueled imagination of ex-El Paso Country Reserve Sheriff Chuck Zukowski for the story, which was picked up by author Ben Mesrick and run with for a best-selling New York Times book the 37th parallel, the secret truth behind America's UFO highway. Chuck is about as straightforward as they come, that trait being what a few might call his downfall, although he and many more fans believe it was a step up when, working for the El Paso Sheriff's Office, he told Fox 32 reporter Heidi Hammett on camera that law enforcement really isn't trained to look at something like this. This being a strange case of cattle mutilations the previous summer at a ranch about an hour east of Colorado Springs. The official report Chuck was told to disseminate was that predators had done the deed. The same ones I mentioned before with one long razor-style tooth for the surgical cuts and a blood and guts vacuum that they carried that neatly removed half the animal, leaving only a set of radiating bright white bones in just a few hours, and in many cases, troublesome rings of radiation all around. Now when Chuck gets called to investigate cattle mutilations, he packs rubber gloves, plastic bags for samples, two cameras, his handheld electromagnetic field reader, and his gun. The average case, a ranch lady greets Chuck 
says the police had just left and that they had told the rancher nothing new. 1001 Heroes got in touch with Chuck and he and his producer graciously gave us the okay to use this video. One of many at his website at ufonut.com. That's the letters U-F-O-N-U-T.com. And one that explains well what keeps him busy these days. It opens with the camera on him as he's driving and wired for sound. And he's driving to an appointment with a rancher who has requested that he come to their ranch to investigate a recent mutilation. Here's the audio portion of that video. And I'll leave a link in the show notes for you as well. This month, around December 13th, which has been about a couple weeks ago, because now it's December 30th, I got a call from Sally Miller, Tom Miller's wife, about a possible cattle mutilation on their ranch. And I said, keep me informed about it. Let me know, you know what you have. Send me some pictures. And that way I'll know whether or not I need to come down and do a personal investigation on this. It's been pretty cold out in the Trinidad area. Uh, average from 8 degrees to I think about 28 degrees. So I know that the animal wasn't going to be, you know, uh, decomposing a lot, not like if it was July. And I still have a nice carcass to look at. There was a second animal that was injured that Tom found near the first animal, roughly 20, 30 feet away, that looked like it had a, either a broken hip or a broken back. And he tried to nurse that one back to health but he had to put it down on uh, December 15th, so uh, three, two to three days after the first mutilation. The one that was unknown has all the earmarks of a mutilation. The cut around the jaw area, uh, the hole in the anal area, missing udder, the missing tongue. And in this particular case, the whole side of the neck coming down to the chest cavity was opened also and it appeared that the rib cage had been broken as if it was placed real hard or dropped where it just separated the rib cage from the back. This is the first time I've ever seen this. And then the shoulder was all kind of disoriented and contorted and, and it's just hanging at a weird angle. So it was definitely, there was some uh, traumatic damage that was done to this animal during the mutilation. I just thought it was dropped and whenever it hit, uh, things went to pieces on it. You're right, it, it's, it was definitely dropped. Yeah, something had to pop something like that, uh, all around like that. Here we have one that has all this damage on it, and here we have a second animal now. This is the 30th of December. This all happened around the 15th, so we're looking 15 days ago. The second animal has no damage at all, except for a little bit of damage right here by the mouth where scavengers came in because the way the rancher put the animal down was shot the animal in the head and it bled out a little bit. So when it bleeds from the mouth, the scavengers come in and they go after the blood around the mouth area and that's where we saw the chewing. And that's the only damage we saw. Why is this one intact and that one over there is not? The non-mutilated animal with the internal damage could have, could have actually 
experience part of the mutilation. Maybe whatever, whatever type of force or energy that picks up the mutilated animal from location A to location B to mutilate it, that maybe it's this cone of energy or something. But I think that possibly, now this is just crazy theory, but maybe the second animal was being picked up too at the same time. Uh, maybe un unwantedly. The second one could have been lifted up and at one point released either due to being on the outskirts of the energy or purposely released, came back down and dropped and either broke its hip or broke its back and that's where it laid and struggled and that's where rancher Tom Miller found it 30 feet, 30 feet away from from the original or the mutilated animal. This is a very, very unique investigation and, and one that, that we learned a, a lot from just due to the comparison analysis between two almost identical animals. It's actually very fascinating, very exciting, unfortunately very sad too because uh, Rancher Miller just lost two, wow, 1,100 pound animals. Um, and, and this I think is his ninth case, at least his ninth mutilation case within all the times I've been investigating Rancher Miller's uh, uh, ranch. It's a, it's a very strange area. It's very active. We thought that maybe it was going to be dying down, but that's not the case. Um, it's still an active area. It's been active at least, as far as I'm concerned, at 40, 50 years. So uh, this, this case is nowhere near being closed, even that area. I know we're going to have more mutilations in the future. Um, it's our job to try and figure out who's responsible for this. And it's our job to try and find evidence to point to the responsible persons or things or, or whatever it is. Uh, but at this time, you know, all the evidence is unknown and we just have to try new and different things to try and find uh, the evidence we need to pinpoint what's actually going on down there. With regard to the upcoming movie, it just might take place in Roswell, where Zukowski unearthed a, a mysterious triangular piece of debris from the 1947 UFO crash site, and where he may have directly communicated with an otherworldly probe flashing bright lights. Zukowski sent a sliver of the metallic fragment to the labs of Bigelow Aerospace, previously mentioned in this story, a startup run by Robert Bigelow, the billionaire owner of hotel chain Budget Suites of America, and space entrepreneur. He's still awaiting results from Bigelow, at last check, who intends to build inflatable space pods in space and has an agreement with the Federal Aviation Administration to report UFO sightings, according to the book The 37th Parallel. The Bigelow story blew me away, says author Mesrick. Here you have the FAA reporting UFOs to a private company in Nevada run by a reclusive billionaire, Bigelow likes to put himself right in the middle of paranormal research, as witnessed by his purchase of the 480-acre Skinwalker Ranch in northeastern Utah. This was the place where, in 2002, journalist George Knapp, in order to get a story, was strapped to a chair on the property of the scariest ranch on Earth, equipped with microphones, a video camera, a Geiger counter, and other strange measuring devices for the purpose of drawing out a humanoid creature at best, an alien encounter at worst, especially one with an appetite for blood. In his article, Path of the Skinwalker, the strangest place on earth, he writes, On this night, 
I am the bait. Bait for what? I wonder. He couldn't have picked a better spot in the southwest. Eons ago, the Ute Indians had legends of beings they called skinwalkers. Powerful spirits placed there by their enemies, the Navajo, to wander between worlds and take victims with them. They had the power to change shapes, sometimes as wolves, other times as coyotes, had the strength of animals ten times their size, and were impervious to bullets and arrows. These were the supernatural super beings of Indian legend. This was the place where a team of researchers watched in wide-eyed amazement as a portal door opened and a humanoid crawled out before quickly vanishing again. When the last rancher before Bigelow, named in one article as Terry Sherman, had purchased the place back in 1994, and on the day he had moved in with his family, a very large wolf made its way across the field and cozied up to the family as if he were a pet dog. Then the wolf strolled over to the corral and grabbed the snout of one of their sheep, trying to pull it through the corral bars. The rancher and his son began beating the wolf's back with nearby sticks, but to no avail. So the rancher ran to his truck and pulled a 357 Magnum from the glove compartment and emptied one slug into the wolf's head at point-blank range. It didn't phase the wolf one bit. After the second shot, the wolf let go of the calf's snout and stood staring at the family while their minds were no doubt screaming rabies. The rancher put shots three and four into the wolf while the son ran for a high-powered rifle. And finally, the fifth shot tore off a chunk of hair. But the wolf still showed no signs of distress. He did, however, back up and then trot back across the field toward a distant line of cottonwood trees. Two weeks later, the rancher's wife spotted a huge wolf standing next to her car, his back as high as her car window. Next to it, a strange-looking dog-like animal was standing. Over the next two years, the ranch family saw dozens of strange animals and glowing lights. They witnessed cattle mutilations, endured hair-raising experiences and attacks, the scariest being an unnamed animal that was seen attacking their horses as they drove toward the ranch house on returning from a day trip. It was low to the ground, heavily muscled, with curly red hair and a bushy tail. It appeared to look like a muscular hyena. When the rancher approached it with a gun, it vanished. It didn't run away, it vanished. The horse was showing numerous claw marks. The wife of a deputy sheriff who stopped by two weeks later saw an animal fitting that description running across the property. The paranormal prank fest hit its peak when the rancher returned home one day to find four of his bulls jammed side by side into a trailer built for one bull. No human being could have coaxed the bulls into that position, but someone or something did. Ranch tools were disappearing, sounds came out of nowhere, faces were appearing in windows, invisible creatures parted the tall grass as they moved away. It was Amityville Horror on steroids. So now you can tell your kids, hey, I've got a great idea for a summer ranch vacation. Many more stories followed. The writer survived the night strapped to the chair. The ranch family moved out two years later and the place was deserted until eccentric billionaire Bob Bigelow bought the place. 
Bigelow put the ranch to good use, inviting all kinds of paranormal researchers, scientists, and interested law enforcement personnel to come and observe. And they've been doing just that. Not many reports or rumors are getting out, however. There has been a near-total blackout on the release of any information in an effort to keep curious people out. And they do warn, do not travel to the ranch. You will not be welcome. It's private property. And besides, paranormal activity has taken a real nosedive in the recent months, they say. So there's nothing to see. I know what, you, I know what you're thinking. Right. But Bigelow has been involved with doing the research the federal government wants no part of now that they have dismantled their black UFO research programs and have begun placing the paranormal research business into the hands of private people, who sometimes happened to be big political donors. Zukowski will be the first to tell you, as he told the reporter, that sheriff's deputies only get a few days training on animal deaths, while he has spent hours in the field and with Colorado State vets learning how to distinguish predator activity from other types of wounds. If you check the bio on his website at ufonut.com, he proudly notes that he spent eight years as a volunteer reserve officer while working primarily as an engineering consultant and microchip designer. As of now, he's racked up six years investigating paranormal activity in New Mexico, Utah, Colorado, and surrounding. And when there's a cattle mutilation, he's the guy that gets called, along with his sister, who threw her hat in the ring as well and accompanies him on many of his trips. Yes, the truth is out there. A maxim made all stronger by reports in 2017 by both the New York Times and Political Magazine of the Secretive Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program, or AATIP for short. Along with the reporting, a video was released by the Department of Defense showing a 2004 encounter near San Diego involving two Navy F-A-18F fighter jets and an unknown object. AATIP was originated by then United States Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, who garnered taxpayer dollars to start the program in 2007, along with the support of the late Senators Daniel Inouye and Ted Stevens. But behind the scenes is Robert Bigelow of Bigelow Aerospace, a Harry Reid political donor in Nevada. A hefty chunk of ATIP's $22 million budget over five years was reportedly given to Bigelow's company to hire subcontractors and carry out research for the program. Now toss into the mix Luis Elizondo, the former intelligence officer who ran ATIP, which initially was under the wing of the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA. He resigned from the job last October, advising CNN post-departure that it was his personal belief that there is very compelling evidence that we may not be alone. Elizondo also told CNN that the crafts studied by ATIP are displaying characteristics that are not currently within the U.S. inventory, nor in any foreign inventory that we're aware of. So now that many of us are convinced that the government has been up to no good regarding all these cattle mutilations, I'm going to prepare you for the next episode, in which we're going to suggest that we are not alone, and we haven't been for quite a while, and that the government is working side by side with little gray men. And we'll give Mark Rodazier the last word. It is complicated, and I am still trying to make sense of things. 
said Mark Rodazier, President and Scientific Director of the J. Allen Hynek Center for UFO Studies in Chicago, Illinois. The center was started by Hynek, who served as the astronomical consultant to Project Blue Book. Hynek himself was initially dubious of the whole UFO business, but after culling through hundreds of reports by witnesses, he became convinced UFOs were worthy of serious study. In broad terms, the outing of the ATIP and its investigation of military UFO sightings confirms something that has been believed for many years, that these sightings are still happening, Rodazier said. We just were not learning about them. All this, at least with respect to looking at the cause of over 10,000 cattle mutilations, is, I think, as worthy of investigating as is the possibility that deaths were all done by predators, animal or human. To deny the existence of other life forms and other technology is to deny our own. Anyone over 40 has witnessed a huge growth in technology here on Earth, and the past 100 years has opened a lot of minds with regard to possibilities of alien life interacting with human life. In our next episode, we'll relate the story currently being told publicly by Canada's last defense minister that the U.S. has known of the existence of aliens since 1946, that they hosted and communicated with a being from another planet who they kept at a secret facility, a being closely resembling E.T., that an exchange program was put together through that meeting that resulted in 12 U.S. astronauts, 10 men and 2 women, being transported to another planet to gather all the science and technology they could and then return back to the U.S. to share it. And if you saw the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you will remember the scene where 12 U.S. astronauts entered an alien ship as part of that program. Producer Spielberg says he dreamed all that. Others say he was provided with that information anonymously by someone who knew it had actually happened. The story that inspired the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, coming next week to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We're a proud part of 1001 Stories Network, which consists of three shows. This one, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Stories for the Road. All three shows generally release new episodes weekly, every Sunday night by 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And all three shows give you great stories to enjoy. If you're new... Welcome to our show. Those of you who have been around for a while know that we recently began offering a free app called 1001 Stories Network, that it's free, and that you can find it at the Apple App Store and Google Play Android App Store and at the links at the end of this show. Along with the new app, we also recently set up a premium member option for listeners who like us enough to want to support our show for $2.99 a month and who get to enjoy ad-free access to new and past episodes, as well as bonus new episodes at all three of our shows. Listeners who do not have premium memberships are finding that about 80 to 90% of our archives are marked premium member only, and each one of those blocked episodes offers a pathway to subscription that will open up all our episodes at all of our 1001 shows. People are getting our app because it's convenient, 
with all three shows in one place. Other gateways exist in all our recent episode show notes and at our show websites, starting with www.1001storiespodcast.com. And if you need to email me, it's a good time to give you that email, 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. We have hundreds of archived episodes that have received millions of listens in the past three years. And to keep all these available requires us to pay hosting fees. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. It takes a tremendous amount of research to do the type of show I'm doing. Digging into history and finding facts that most folks haven't come across. And relating the stories to you in an entertaining way. I spend hours editing a one-hour show. And all of you know that I enjoy this means of storytelling and put a lot of passion into each story, sometimes taking sides, other times leaving it up to you. Today's story is a good example of that. You and I have communicated many ways through direct messages, through Facebook, Twitter, through emails, even through great ratings when you enjoy an episode so much that you want to share it with your friends, and then they pass it on to others. We have experienced some incredible moments in history together, such as when General Washington responded to an officer mutiny and for the first time in public produced a pair of eyeglasses from his pocket in order to read. A simple act that brought some of the hardened men in the room to tears, realizing how much and for how many years their commander-in-chief had been giving of himself in service to his country. Or the moment when the intrepid newspaper reporter Owen Stanley extended his hand to the gray-haired Dr. Livingston, saying, Dr. Livingston, I presume, after finally finding him living with a tribe of natives in the heart of Africa. Or as we followed a young Nathan Hale, as he was led by his British captors to the hanging tree under which he spoke of freedom and liberty, saying, I regret that I have but one life to give for my country. Or as we pointed the nose of our dive bomber toward the deck of a Japanese carrier at Midway, along with Dusty Kleiss, who changed the course of World War II in minutes, with undaunted courage and fortitude. Advertisers come and go, and when they come, they cover only about 25% of our expenses here. The rest, I cover. So I'm asking you to become a premium member. Libsyn, our host, is the oldest, biggest, and best of the podcast host companies, and they offer this secure site for subscribers. The link is in the show notes. Joining us makes you a premium member and supporter of our show, and with that you get the satisfaction of knowing that your monthly gift is helping to support a family-friendly show that offers an amazing mixture of historical stories and drama, along with classic literature. Unlike many of today's podcasts, which are full of explicit words and material, we offer content that teaches history, uncovers mysteries, probes the mind, tells of legends, and brings past heroes to life. Best of all, you can share our episodes from all three of our shows, 1001 Heroes, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Classic Short Stories with anyone. For me, it's been a fantastical journey, and each story takes me down another path to adventure and learning. We used to say that being a fan of this show means never being at a loss for something to talk about in a conversation. How true that is. You all know how much I appreciate your listening. Now it's time to take a minute and show yours. We need your support, and we're asking you to step up. Thank you. 
Now check the show notes, download the free app, then subscribe. If you can't open the show notes, go to 1001storiespodcast.com website and look at that page for links. You'll feel great that you're supporting one of the last non-corporate-owned independent podcasters who is providing family-friendly entertainment. Thank you. We'll see you next week. We've got a great story for you.